Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Politics without the soap opera. With unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen yearning for freedom and liberty once again to the CR Podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house. Thank God it is Friday. I am ready to retire for this week. I'm ready to retire forever. And that's really what I was going to do prior to the apocalypse. And by the apocalypse, I mean COVID, COVID fascism, Everything falling apart in our lives. The worst possible stuff we've been doing in Afghanistan. You can't imagine all this stuff. The economy going to hell. The culture going to hell. Safety and crime. Borders erased. And that's when I realized I can't retire. Because I can't tune it out. You can't ignore it. It actually affects their life. Literally. In many, many ways. So we have no place to go but to fight. To, to move forward. So we're going to have on today a very special guest in a couple minutes, Dr. Molly James, um, a frontline ICU doctor who has treated COVID patients since the beginning in New York City and now outpatient as well. We're going to get her perspective. Um, But before we get back to that, I do want to go ahead and just say a little bit on Afghanistan. It's something that has bothered me because it's distracting from the main issue. But at the same time, it really has become an issue. It's self-fulfilling. It shouldn't have been an issue. Should have been taken care of under Trump. We should have been out of there the proper way, as I outlined at the time, how to do it through keeping Bagram Air Base. But now we have 15 American soldiers, American Marines dead. And I just want to say that this is occurring at a time when there's now a new memo out, military threatens to revoke benefits from Marines who decline COVID vaccine. So I just want to give you a 50,000-foot view of what the military is today. You must wear a mask and get jabbed, but you can't carry your gun on a base. You're blasted and inundated with a lethal viral load of racism and gender-bending social engineering anti-American, anti-Christian, anti-sanity agenda. You're placed in untenable meat grinders, not in the proper defensive position, but not properly going on offense with strike and maneuver either, all to build and defend other countries' people that hate us anyway. And then you facilitate that we could bring in hundreds of thousands of refugees and get killed in the process. Be all you can be, folks. It's sickening. So my views have not changed since yesterday other than one other step. Until now, I said, look, the fact that Biden did such, and it's not Biden, I mean, he's a dead man. It's it's the administration, it's the people behind him, did something this criminal and left behind Americans and weapons for the Taliban is a, you know, doesn't negate the fact that it's not, it shouldn't be used as an excuse to stay there another 20 years 
um, and we should just get the stuff, get blow up the weapons, get all Americans out, not Afghanis, and be done with it. Now I would just add one step into that. We shouldn't have been there, and this should never have happened, but once it did, and 15 Marines are killed, I think on our way out, we need about 48, 72 hours of trying out our latest weapons um, as a testing ground on a third of the country or wherever there's the most of their strongholds and just go nuclear on them. And maybe warn them, you know what? We might mow the lawn every three months here and there when we feel like it. That's that's what we should be doing. But my fear is that too many people, and, and again, I want to talk about this a little bit more next week, but I just wanted to, to, to respond to this horrific attack yesterday. Too many conservative pundits and talkers and elected officials, so-called conservatives, they're too focused on outrage mongering against Biden as an end to itself rather than policy outcomes. It drives me nuts. Look, it's diabolical what, what they've done, what he's done, what the administration has done in Afghanistan from any perspective. But you have to be careful that you don't make it like as an end to itself that it, it's used as an impetus for getting more entrenched in Afghanistan and or bringing in hundreds of thousands of refugees, which, by the way, tens of thousands are already headed um, to Fort Dix in, in New Jersey at a minimum, among other places, and that ship has sailed. But they're helping that, and, and, and depending on which person we're talking about, some of them are downright supportive of it. That is not the answer. The very reason our soldiers were in this predicament, with the suicide bombers, with going into ambushes, for, this has been the story of 20 years, is because of the same reason we shouldn't let them in as refugees. And that is, Afghanistan is not a Taliban problem. Afghanistan is an Afghanistan problem. The people reflect that. If the people were truly like these, you know, they, they, they basically make it out to be, there's a few extremists called the Taliban, in, you know, somehow severable from the rest of the Afghanis. And I'm not saying there was never a decent person we worked with there and never but but the point is let, let me just underscore this with a, with a point. I'm going to talk about this more next week. I'm going to write a column on this. But a while back in 2013 Pew did a poll of sentiments in Muslim countries. And if you look at Afghanistan there's a lot of troubling findings but I'll just give you one. 39 uh, 99% support Sharia law. A bunch of other things, you know, wife beating, wife control, this and that. 39% of Afghans said suicide bombing is often or sometimes justified. Okay? Um, and only 40% said it's never justified. So 60% could entertain. And that's the most extreme thing. But in terms of like the, the bubbling worldview and sentiments underlying that, it's, it's overwhelming majorities. So if you want to know why we haven't been able to win Afghanistan, that's why. Like, there's all this crocodile tears over what women face under the Taliban. But, you know, Karzai and all these guys, they set up a Sharia government without the Taliban, too. Okay? You know, it, 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 it is the height of gall for these people to somehow insinuate 
that we didn't spend enough trillions of dollars and we didn't shed enough American lives. We let the Afghani military down. And someone want to pin that on Biden. No, I mean, Biden's issue was, you know, giving the Taliban a list of names, leaving our weapons behind, leaving our people behind. You know, that's a straw man. But in terms of the long-term Afghani military, like somehow we had it worked out and Biden messed it up. I mean, yeah, he messes everything up anyway, but no. The problem with the Afghani military and the Afghani people is the Afghani people. That is not our problem. And that's the same reason you can't bring them in. This is what nobody wants to talk about. And most of them that you bring in, they're not going to kill you. It's their four, five, six-year-old children that grow up. That's what it always is. This, the next generation, they, they, they're brought up, their parents, their parents are busy kind of settling, either working or on welfare, depending on the, which one. Um, but, you know, they'll imbue them with Sharia law, and the kids grow up very conflicted and very disenchanted from America. And that has been the lesson. Omar Mateen, okay? He was actually born in America already. Omar Mateen, one of the greatest terror attack we've had since 9-11, um, the Pulse nightclub in Orlando. He was the child of Afghani refugees. There's a bunch of stories in Europe. It's interesting, like, you know, I mean, Europe's a punchline. I don't need to explain that to you. What's going on there? How, how crazy it is. But anyway, um, you have... I've noticed Afghans, Afghans in particular, have been problematic there. So again, I'm going to have a little bit more on this as time develops, but you got to parse this the right way. If you just want to outrage monger against Biden as an end to itself, that's, that's worthless. Now, speaking of having a proper vision, a lot of us don't have proper vision. We don't, the glasses don't fit, they don't work, and we kind of like walk around without them. Rodenstock, their Better Spectacles line of lenses has you covered. Rodenstock is a 144-year-old company, the world's gold standard with over 500 patents. Um, Ronald Reagan wore them. They have GoSpecs lenses, and I have my own, and I could tell you my wife loves them. I love them. Um, my only criticism is that my wife likes them too much that she doesn't wear contacts enough, and you don't see her beautiful eyes enough, but they're really good. Give you more energy, no neck strain, ability to see up to 40%. Go to betterspectacles.com slash conservative. Um, if you don't want to go in person to a place, they have tele-optical appointments so you don't have to wear a mask. They're offering my audience 61% off their GoSpecs lenses plus free handcrafted stock frames. Visit betterspectacles.com slash conservative to see better. Okay. So I want to move this conversation back to COVID. And again, very similar to terrorism, 9-11, Afghanistan, foreign policy, immigration. What we should be doing, we don't do. And everything that's counterintuitive, counterproductive to what we need to be doing is what we do. Um, you know, as a transition into... Um, our guest, I want to give you kind of two points here. Two points juxtaposed to one another. Again, what we should be doing, shouldn't be doing. I, I mentioned to you that Professor Amora and Campbell, 
Amora's Japanese, Campbell's American. In the 70s, they developed ivermectin. They took from what was used for animals, they developed it for humans. And, you know, we talked about, again, if you, you, you just study the literature, I've never seen a drug that is written about in all journals with such reverence. Like, it's the greatest medical achievement in 50 years, a lot of them say, what it did. And, you know, cured, you know, obviously river blindness and everything, and it's broad mechanism of action, it's safety, all of it. But I always wondered, what does Professor Amura think? I was like, I don't know, is he even still alive? Because they're all pointing out, well, Daniel, Merck themselves that made the drug are against it. I'm like, yeah, obviously, because they have no money to make, and, and they're making a drug that they're going to earn a killing off of, so they have to do that. But who would have more trust, Merck in 2021, given their politics, or the scientists back then who selflessly helped them develop this drug? Well, evidently, I missed the boat. Evidently, in March, Amura had some statements and publications that he came out with. Professor Amura, indeed, he is still alive, in the Japanese Journal of Antibiotics, um, March, 3rd, March 10th, a couple months ago, quote, it is hoped that ivermectin will be utilized as a countermeasure for COVID-19 as soon as possible. He wrote elsewhere, ivermectin has continually proved to be astonishingly safe for human use. Indeed, it is such a safe drug, minimal side effects, that it can be administered by non-medical staff and even illiterate individuals in remote rural communities, provided that they have had some very basic appropriate training. Imagine that, folks. Okay, this is, this is the man. No, Daniel, that was for parasites. This is a virus. It's different. Well, this is from the man himself. Shouldn't we let him speak? Doesn't he? He won a Nobel Prize in 2015 because of this. Shouldn't we listen to him? And indeed, the Japanese health ministry is now getting into ivermectin. And, and again, I just want to make one more point on ivermectin before we bring on our guest and talk a little bit more about her experience with it. You know, we no longer have to talk about oh, this thing was used in mass in Africa for river blindness, so we know it's safe. It's better than that. This is not March 2020 anymore. We're 18 months into it. As much as it's been repressed and suppressed and not used, it in certain places where it's been used, it's been used in mass even more than it was used for river blindness because COVID is everywhere and everyone's getting it. Uttar Pradesh has a population of 240 million. They went house to house. The hundreds of millions just there. And there's several other Uttar Karan and, and um, uh, Goa. Uh, I'm missing. There's a few other provinces. There are states that used it too. Hundreds of millions of people. Even in America, it's not used enough, but it's being used more and more. And it's been used for 18 months by doctors. They've never had a problem with it, obviously. Like we never had a problem in 1987 with it. Suddenly, we're, we're to hear these lies. Every drug that was used safely forever, suddenly now it is a problem. Suddenly now it's a problem. Totally ridiculous. Unbelievable. But I want to get to our guest. Now, today's guest segment is sponsored by our friends at Alliance Defending Freedom. I'm telling you, folks, there are very few people on our side that have any resources to fight back in the courts. In fact... Uh, everything that we have has to be pro bono. There's no money in fighting for religious freedom. That's why ADF relies on the gener generosity of patriots like you um, with family freedom and even basic biology under constant attack. ADF needs your support. 
Now more than ever, go to adflegal.org slash CR and get your copy of ADF's ebook titled Generational Wins. It's absolutely free. You're going to discover why it's so vital to have representation. We certainly see that now with the violation of liberty uh, really in a shocking, shocking way. Again, go to adflegal.org slash CR, adflegal.org slash CR to download a copy of Generational Wins. Now, as I was bringing on our special guest today, I just wanted to frame the discussion today around an article I saw in Florida that really encapsulates what's going on in this country, not just now, but is a full summation of the last 18 months of horror. And it's from WHIO-TV in Florida, um, South Florida, Miami area. After eight fully vaccinated family members get COVID, Miami Valley woman still encourages vaccines. And, and you've seen a lot of these headlines, and it's, it's mentally ill, that sentiment, but that's not even my point. And she talks about a whole family testing positive and everything, and then mentions... Harlow explained most of her family had mild cases and have all mostly recovered, mostly recovered. However, her 93-year-old father is still in the hospital and has been for about three weeks. He said this is the worst thing he's ever been through in his whole life, just a daily fight to breathe, Harlow said. As he fights, she is angry. And, and I want to focus on this quote. This is what we avoided for a year and a half, not going anywhere wearing masks all the time, having deliveries of groceries, and not seeing any family members, Harlow said. And I want to I use this because we are living in a grave time where we're sandwiched between a virus that truly is very problematic in my mind, much more so than before. And I, my view is I call it the Vax variant. I do believe that there is a degree of ADE going on on some level, some viral enhancement um, that was actually caused by it. But even putting that aside... We have killed ourselves as humans, mental health, physical health, human experiences, all these seniors that lost the final 18 months of their life to you know, experience their grandchildren or any life cycle events. Um, the, the, the devastation is something that is beyond biblical. And my position all, all along was not that there's no problem with the virus because I believed it was genetically modified. It is a problem. But that what we're doing is not working. It's all harm, not just against you know the collateral damage with everything else, the society, economy, but even the virus itself. We've noted many ways that this strategy was actually counterintuitive. It drew people more to the hospital. Um, and then the one thing we could have done was never done for 99% of people, which just like a staph infection, just like the onset of Lyme disease, just like stage two cancer versus stage four, actually treating it when it's eminently more treatable. And they didn't invest an iota of the trillions of dollars we spent. We already have pretty good cocktails. We could have even had better stuff with a modicum of support and research. And it's this type of family that I look at. We understand if you didn't get the vaccine, you're a dirtbag, you deserve to die. We, we got that message. We, we, we certainly gotten that. But the reality is increasingly, we're seeing even the people that experience terrible side effects from it and they wore the mask, and they did everything, and they stayed on it. At the end of the day, they get it. And particularly the people who needed this the most, like a 93-year-old, it's not working. What do we have to offer them? Shut up, get the vaccine. Well, they got it. The one thing is early treatment. 
Now, who better to discuss this than Dr. Molly James? Uh, our next guest, she's a board-certified, uh, not just in as, a, as an intensivist in ICU care, but also in general surgery. She's a surgeon. Uh, she was a trauma critical care surgeon for the first six years of her career, and now mainly practices critical care medicine. Um, she's also certified in functional medicine. So, you know, very much has this mindset of looking at the root cause, the physiology of, um, you know, of, of different uh, viruses as well as the mechanisms of action needed to fight them. So she is not someone who's like, oh, the virus doesn't exist. That's a straw man. In fact, she volunteered in the ICU in New York City during the peak, you know, in, the, in, in March, April. Um, she works in St. Louis, but also divides her time still going back to New York City um, for a certain amount of time. So she sees what's going on, and she recently launched her functional medicine virtual clinic in response to the growing need for outpatient treatment, ivermectincan.com. We're going to talk about that more later. Dr. James, thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, Daniel. Thanks for having me. And it's interesting that you open this with a story about somebody who's been in the hospital for three weeks. Because I think that's one thing we need to talk about. What is the typical hospital course of people who are on the standard, quote, standard protocols? And what is our ability to improve upon that? So, so I'm yeah. not surprised that, yeah, I'm not surprised that somebody has been in the hospital for three weeks, um, three to four to five weeks even, um, based on what we're doing. And I've had the opportunity to actually give one patient in my ICU ivermectin had been on 10 days of standard therapy, so the normal stuff that we do, the cookbook stuff, and I converted him to ivermectin and the math plus protocol, and within 48 hours, he was almost off of oxygen. So I want to, that, that, that's extremely powerful, and it's shocking that Americans are not hearing that story, but I want mm -hmm. to, man, this is like 18 months worth, we have to catch up in, in, in about 30, 40 minutes here, but let's, let's try to do mm -hmm. it like this. Um, mm -hmm. typically we hear interviews with ICU doctors, ICU nurses, and the point is, this is horrible. What we're seeing is horrific and, and that is true, but it's the next step. And therefore shut up. You better lock down. Otherwise it's your fault for getting it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Then that proved not to be true. Then it was shut mm -hmm. up. It's your fault for not wearing a mask. Otherwise you wouldn't have gotten it. Well, then that proved not mm -hmm. to be true. Now the right. third tranche is even more virulent. This sentiment is you guys didn't get vaccinated and that's why you're here and you guys deserve to die. So you are literally as frontline as they get. You are in New York City as an ICU doctor treating COVID. You have a very different message. Why? I do because, um, first of all, we have so much we could improve upon in the inpatient treatment. But if we get to them, as, as you've talked about, a lot. If we get to them as early treatment, they won't end up in the hospital at all. And I've had a handful of people that I've been able to get outpatient treatment that don't end up in the hospital. But once they do end up there, it's too late. So then now we have to look at how can we optimize within that. And there are a number of things we can talk about down that road. So let's start backwards then. You know what? Let I've, yeah. I, I do want to talk a little bit about it, but I've spent several weeks in early treatment. But I do want to mm -hmm discuss okay you know they didn't get the early treatment vaccinated not vaccinated mm -hmm. whatever they wind up in the hospital you see them mm -hmm. in the icu now your bio reads to me like you know some of these like 
you know, ER type of shows like critical care surgeon. I mean, the pressure, people are crashing. Mm -hmm. Tell me what mm -hmm. you're seeing. What what does it look like when you encounter mm -hmm. a COVID patient in the ICU? Yeah, so generally when they come to us, um, they've been on, depending on how full the hospitals are, right? Because the more full we get, the sicker they are by the time they get to the ICU because we can't take people on high-flow nasal cannula if we're full of ventilators. So generally what we've been doing is they're on high-flow nasal cannula. That's actually a great thing that we've had expanded throughout the pandemic. So I can give someone 100% oxygen. We normally breathe 21% oxygen in the air. We can give them 100% oxygen through the high-flow nasal cannula and take care of the oxygenation issues. So when they're crashing into the ICU, basically now they're breathing 40 and 50 times a minute, which looks like panting, and they're desaturating despite all of that. So they really come to the ICU in bad shape at that point. Could you explain the just the science behind what's going on? Just just from an ignorant layman like me, I figure, all right, the, the, the oxygen is so important. You get them on. But then why do people mm -hmm. deteriorate and die even when they're on 100% oxygen? What, what's going on there? Yeah, so here's the way I explain it, and a nice bar graph would do the trick, but um, if you're on 20, if we're breathing broom air and we have healthy lungs, and I poke and do a blood gas and check the, the oxygen level, it's around 100, so on average. So if I give someone five times more oxygen, their oxygen level in the blood should be five times higher. So if I put someone on 100% oxygen and their PO2 from the blood gas should be 500. But these people's lungs are so inflamed and they're basically bypassing their lungs that instead of having a blood gas showing a PO2 of 500, it's less than 100. So they're losing 80 to 90% of the oxygen that we're giving them is not getting through the lungs into the bloodstream. Wow. Okay. So, so basically the lungs are failing. So, so am I correct to say that while there's several issues, there's cardiovascular issues, there's several issues with COVID, but that the 800 pound gorilla in the room is this pulmonary inflammation? Oh, absolutely. It's inflammation in the lungs. It makes the little microscopic balloons of the lungs thicker. So oxygen can't get through. And then it's microscopic blood clots throughout the lungs as well. So not only do you have oxygen impaired from going through the balloon called the alveoli into the bloodstream, you have microscopic clots in the bloodstream that impairs blood flow. So you have to have oxygen coming in from the lungs and blood crossing past it in the vessels to pick up oxygen. And we have impaired um, both of those. So one one technical question, because I'm just so obsessed with this, and then I want to get to the treatment. Um, mm -hmm. what is the difference between a cytokine storm, you know, resulting from the viral pulmonary inflammation to the run of the mill bacterial pneumonia that you've been treating and seeing mm -hmm. in the hospital every winter? Yeah. So this is completely different. So when you see a bacterial pneumonia, basically it's bacteria and pus filling those little balloons. So when those people come in and they're panting and they're coughing and they're low oxygen levels, remember I told you that 500 number, if I put someone on 100% oxygen, the difference between COVID is COVID people can breathe if that number is less than 100. Well, normally when you have a bacterial infection, that number can be under 300 or 200 and patients are so short of breath, they cannot breathe. 
and um, you can actually suction that out of the lungs. You have more healthy lung tissue around that section of the lung that has the infection, and it clears within a couple of days. This is completely different. It's the entire lungs that are congested, and there are very few things it responds to with sophisticated ventilator manipulations and maneuvers. Got it. So that that that's the real issue here is that pulmonary inflammation that is all encompassing, and you know, whereas it seems that you know plenty of people do die from pneumonia, but generally speaking, especially if they're not really, you know, at the end of their life. Generally speaking, with antibiotics and other things, suctioning it, we have the ability to get it under control. So this is what mm -hmm. flummoxed us. And now I think we could all understand, you know, it started out as just a virus, and most people were just getting it as a virus, and that was the end. But then mm -hmm. these people mm -hmm. suddenly, a week or two weeks into it, would get this cytokine yeah. storm, and that's what flummoxed the hospitals in New York. But that was 18 months ago. What have you well, learned? I'm sorry. Well, so I think, too, that the pneumonia patient, the typical bacterial pneumonia patients get sicker faster, so they present earlier, where these people with a cytokine storm, I can be talking to them on the phone, and they're sitting at home not having shortness of breath, and their oxygen level is 60, 60%. Wow. And I so thought, like, at, at 85, I thought at 85, like, you're done. Well, normally, right, you can't breathe, and we start seeing people wow. going to arrhythmias and things. Yeah, but so they're so hypoxemic, their oxygen levels are so low that the tissues and the organs are having hypoxemic stress and damage underlying that. So that's why they present so sick with a cytokine storm, and it probably adds to it significantly. How do they not know that they're that low? I mean, saying what else is presenting, like high fever, or what other symptoms usually come with that? Well, that's the problem, is it's usually just like a cold, right? That's why we call them the happy hypoxemic. That's why it's so important that people have a pulse oximeter if they're being treated at home. So that way we can monitor for that. That's that's the early treatment. Okay, so now, you know, 18 months later, there's no surprise. Mm -hmm. We know exactly what this is going to do or has potential to do. Mm -hmm. We could see that, yeah. that play coming a mile away. Um, mm -hmm. What have you learned over 18 months, and what do you feel some of your colleagues have not learned? So... I think there's some common patterns. Number one, we all know remdesivir doesn't do anything. Um, it hasn't done anything from the beginning once patients are in the ICU. There may be, I'm going to take the devil's advocate side, that there may be a subset of patients that before they get to the ICU, it may help. Um, yep. I don't necessarily think so. Um, but now we, we have some data that not only does it not help, but it potentially causes significant harm. And we've attributed that harm in the past, elevated liver enzymes and renal failure, we thought was just part of the COVID. But um, I've seen some pretty good evidence lately that it may be actually attributed to the remdesivir. Um, so that needs to be off of our treatment protocols. And also giving it any time past five days, five to seven days, it just makes no physiologic sense. So that would be a big one. And what about, um, so what about the choice of steroid? Yep. So the choice of steroid, I know there's some controversy about methylprednisolone versus dexamethasone. And I've talked about that a lot. I, so that's one issue. I've tried to use more methylpred lately. Um, however, more concerning than that is I teach residents, and so the residents, you know, propose plans to me, so I kind of know what other doctors are doing, and we'll have a patient in the ICU, and they'll want to stop steroids because it's day five or day 10. 
And that's regardless of how the patient is doing. So you can have a patient getting worse by the day and the plan is to stop the steroids because the study said 10 days. That just doesn't make any physiologic sense to me. You have to match what the patient's doing. And if they're getting worse because of an inflammatory problem, you probably shouldn't be stopping the steroids early. And that's not consistent with the our data before COVID. So um, which suggested we needed to keep people on steroids until they're off of oxygen and maybe even a little longer. So also I've heard from people that not only is dexamethasone not really the the best choice of a steroid for pulmonary inflammation and it might cause some harm, but to the extent that it's going to be worthwhile, you have to use a higher dose than what they're doing. Is, is that what you're seeing? Yes. And I, again, I work in several different ICUs. So one of the advantages is I see different ways people are doing it. And I'm at a hospital now where they've gone to at least 10 to 20 milligrams several two or three times a day. So they are using those higher doses, thankfully. Um, that's definitely what it's going to take to help patients when they're in that super inflammatory stage. All and right. I'm not sure why we're not using other inflammatories like anti-inflammatories like curcumin and more herbal kind of things. Urban like NAC. I know you're a, a, a fan of that. NAC. Um, yeah. People... N- NAC. Yeah. NAC and vitamin C kind of fall under the same category. Um, I don't think you know, this is more of a functional medicine principle is the oxidative stress or the damage caused by the inflammation and having to support the body through that damage as you're treating the underlying cause. Um, so vitamin C, you know, we, we know it has good evidence when given early in IV form. Um, N-acetylcysteine is a glutathione donor. It's a massive anti- antioxidant. So it also is supportive. It helps the liver recover when it's under stress. So these are not commonly given and not widely available. And if they are given, they're underdosed significantly. But more importantly is vitamin D. So, yeah, and I know and yeah. I know you and I spoke a lot about, you know, when we spoke on the show about calcifile, that there is an active form that doesn't seem to be available, that you can get it directly mm-hmm. in their system and likely get them above 50 Um, Mm -hmm. but could you discuss a little bit about what you're trying to do and some of the opposition you're facing? Yeah. So again, before COVID, we knew that I tried to optimize my patients in my functional medicine clinic and get their vitamin D levels above 50. And there was even some evidence shown that if you take super doses of vitamin D, like 50,000 a day for two or three days before a flu shot, it would help improve the immunologic response because it's a hormone that drives the immune system. So it makes a whole lot of sense that people with higher vitamin D levels have a mu- do much better with COVID, have a much less likely chance of ending up in the ICU and dying. Um, I'm one of the few or only docs in my um, atmosphere who's checking vitamin D levels, and I found most of my ICU patients are below 20. Um, most of them, when they're dosed and replaced, are underdosed. Um, I see anything from 400 IUs a day to 1,000 or 2,000. Um, wait, wait, 5, you're, you're, you're telling me ICU dosages? Yeah, so the doses my, uh, that I've seen my colleagues prescribe are, are massively low. They're, they're very underdosed. So you're telling so me they're I less start, than what's recommended for healthy people like every day. Right, right, yes. Um, so I try to do at least 5,000 a day, if not 10,000 a day, if I can get it, and then 50,000 a day, if, if I can get it in the ICU. 
the one thing we don't know is starting low is bad, but if you start low and while you're in the ICU, we can bring you up, does that help you? And I don't think we have the answer to that, but it's, again, when you look at risk benefit, which is everything in the ICU, the risk of giving vitamin D is very low and the potential benefit is very high. So that seems to be an easy thing. We should be aggressively dosing vitamin D in the ICU. Are you right now, um, I know you're not really in a hot spot for right now, but I'm, I'm assuming mm-hmm. you have some COVID patients you're dealing with? I do. You yeah. do. So are you seeing qualitatively any difference in what they're presenting with now than, say, last year? By the time they get to us, they pretty much look the same. So... Um, unfortunately, a lot of the ones I've seen have had outpatient treatment, but it's been inappropriate. So for example, they've been given steroids right up front in day one to three when they're in the viral phase instead of antivirals. Mm. Um, so if they have been given treatment, they may given the wrong treatment up front or, um, just not aggressive enough treatment. Got it. Okay. So that's, that's finally mm-hmm. getting out there. And then, cause there's a question whether, mm-hmm. What's going on now is more virulent and requires more mm-hmm. early and aggressive intervention. Um, so I was just wondering mm-hmm. if they if they present a little different. What's kind of the profile of what you see in the ICU? You know, everyone's always wondering about that. Yeah. So generally, kind of the average is sixty to seventy years old, high blood pressure, morbid obesity, like two hundred and fifty to three hundred pounds plus, um, either early diabetes or profoundly diabetic with uncontrolled blood sugars um, and just kind of you're not very healthy, not very active, eating the normal standard American diet. That's what we're seeing. And you're um, saying they're I almost would, all below 20 in, in vitamin D. Correct. Now, I will say within the last week, that's skewed a little bit younger. I think that's probably just because I'm at a referral center. So we're taking people who have better chance of doing well. Um, mm. that's how we triage people. So we're talking 40 year olds with no medical conditions, underlying medical so conditions. So really we're playing a little bit me. younger. Uh, so is that because yeah. of your circumstance of what you're doing? Like you just said with the referral or do you, cause mm-hmm. anecdotally, again, I'm very worried about this concern of viral enhancement of Vandenbosch and Malone mm-hmm. and, and Peter yep. McCullough have been warning. I'm very concerned about that because I, as an outsider, I've never heard of these 30, 40 year old males. I don't say never, but you know, very, very rarely mm-hmm. um, having, being in that predicament, being needed to be intubated. Whereas now I'm hearing it all the time, but you as being in the ICU from beginning to end, do you yeah. think it's changed? So I think it probably has changed and it's skewed younger overall. I will say, you know, my population at the beginning was a little bit skewed because I was in an ECMO unit and we were only doing ECMO and young, healthy people. So I had 30 to 40 year old Mm. healthy Hispanic males who were on ECMO with no underlying conditions. So again, my experience is just microscopic and probably doesn't, you know, reflect the bigger perspective just because of where I've been working. Um, I do think though, you know, my population in New York is different than my population in the Midwest significantly. And generally in the Midwest, it has been um, Caucasian, middle-aged, 50 to 70-year-old with kind of the basic syndrome X, the high blood pressure, diabetes, overweight. And and do you think that when you're – because I know you're like in Queens and New York City areas like that. 
Do you mm-hmm. think the reason why you would see younger, you said Hispanic, does that have to do with a lot of a lot of the other doctors I have had on the show um, that they generally have lower um, vitamin D levels, or are there other reasons? I think that's part of it. Um, things were so busy at that time because again, we're talking about March or April, May when it was crazy in New York, and everyone was you know to get testing every day was hard because the systems were so overburdened. Um, I think that's part of it probably is vitamin D levels. I, we weren't checking them then. Um, I think part of it is cultural because of uh, a lot of the patients where I, I was in Brooklyn and in Queens, both. Um, they had populations that lived in multi-generation, multi-generational homes and apartments with multiple people in a small enclosed space. So my best guess is high viral load in those people just mm. because there were so many people in their space. And they, you know, they live in, in crowded apartments. There's that hundreds of people going up the same elevator. So just a lot of high viral load, I think, is what I would attribute that to in, in those populations. Got it. And, and you're saying a high viral load, you know, let's say it takes X amount to take down a 70-year-old, but, you know, you bump mm-hmm. up that load to a certain other amount, you know, that's greater, you could knock down a 30-year-old with it. Um, yeah. And I think that's kind of why they thought healthcare workers were getting sick at the beginning as well, just because they were intubating people and getting a high viral load repeatedly over and over. About how, when, when you um, look at the patient profile, the, the write-up on a patient that you see in the ICU, about how long have they had the virus for? Yeah, so I'm generally seeing them about 10 days in. So it's really the post-COVID ARDS that we see. Interestingly enough, so so ironically, they probably shouldn't be contagious. Correct. Yeah. I mean, I ha- I've had two or three in the last two days that came in, and they were about 10 days out, and that was the exact argument I made is we don't have to isolate them. Because that's sure. what I never understood. If you're, you know, the ER is one thing, but if you're at that stage, um, even CDC's mm-hmm. guidance, I think, is like after day eight, um, that yeah. you're not transmissible. That's CDC's guidance. So it's a little bit bizarre that in hospitals, because one of the concerns I'm getting from a lot of people, and I want to get your, you know, your sense of, we talked about some of the treatment. I want to talk about the culture, the attitude of some of the doctors, you know, different mm-hmm. people are different. They're not, everyone's the same, but I'm hearing a lot of like, they're locked out of the ICU, so the spouse cannot mm-hmm. come in. No family member can come mm-hmm. in. You don't have a patient advocate. Mm-hmm. They're getting remdesivir and dexamethasone, and pretty much that's it. Obviously, again, it's not like there's nothing they do that's helpful, the oxygen, whatever. There's certainly some mm-hmm. things they'll give them anticoagulants that we're not going to say aren't helpful. They, they're, they're needed, but they're not yeah. giving them everything they need, and some of the stuff might be harmful. Mm-hmm. There's no advocate, and mm-hmm. there's just this sense that and I want to see if you agree with this or if you're saying no, that too many of these doctors, I, I look, at a political medical level, like the medical establishment that yaps around on Twitter is definitely true, that mm-hmm. there is no effort the last 18 months to be like, how could we fine-tune this? How could we better treat? It's all about social control, not viral mm-hmm. control, not medical mm-hmm. interventions. It's, it's not... Are you seeing that, that it's just like, look, we're sick of this. Get out of here. I don't want to hear from family members. We're doing what we're doing. We have no desire. Get vaccinated, and that's it. We have no desire to try to go the extra yard to to think of better ways of dealing with this. 
So these are my colleagues that I respect. So um, I will say this. I don't think there's malintent at the bedside. Um, I think every person thinks they're doing the best for the patient. Some of them, I don't agree with their approach at all. Um, but I do think they think they're doing the best for the patient. Um, I think we as doctors tend to, to dig in a rut and defend what we think is best, even when we're faced with new information. And I hope people can be open to the information that's coming out and new approaches. Um, I think there's something called compassion fatigue, um, where they're just, ex everyone is exhausted. Everyone is traumatized from the amount of death that we've seen over the last 18 months. It's been horrific. Um, and just when they think in their minds that a vaccine would have stopped this, I can understand where that comes yeah. from. I just feel it's completely misplaced because now, I'm yeah. afraid of what's coming with the vaccines. And I'm afraid of the people, the only long-term studies we have on the vaccines are the people who vaccinated ahead of us and they're seeing worse things than they saw the first round. So I'm looking ahead and saying, I'm really hoping that doesn't happen here. And if it does, we've really made a big misstep in the wrong direction. Um, so literally as I'm on the phone with you, I want to get your comment about, and again, I, we're not going to talk about any specific hospital or specific doctor, but I have mm -hmm. a pulmonologist who just texted me as I'm talking to you. It's becoming worse than Stalin and the third Reich. And he links to a CNN article that's out there. Arkansas doctor under investigation for prescribing um, I guess, yeah, anti-parasitic, it looks like this is, I guess, is Iver yeah, ivermectin. Um, mm -hmm. So a doctor is under investigation. Are you meeting that same animosity for ivermectin and some other things? I mean, I've heard the sentiments. I've seen the insultive posts on social media. Um, you know, people choose to believe the data that's out there. You know, they believe that remdesivir helps and it's going to save the world, and they believe when the IDSA and the CDC tell them not to use ivermectin, not to use it. Unfortunately, I think you have to look at who's been successful in treating patients, and maybe we should be more curious what they are doing. Um, I'm familiar with the article that you're talking about, about our, our Arkansas, and what they bury in the offensive headline is that the doctor treated 500 people and only one, 500 cases of COVID and only one ended up in the hospital. And not because so of ivermectin. Right. Not because of ivermectin, because he effectively treated it. And you're always going to have a breakthrough here and there. Sure. This is somebody who's going to fail treatment. So instead of investigating, I hope they're investigating to find out what the heck did you do and how can we distribute it and get that going, you know, more broadly. It, it is unbelievable. Again, I mean, I don't know if you're aware of this, uh, Dr. James, but when before I brought you on, I read a quote from Professor Amura. Um I never knew this. It's funny. I'm late to the party. He evidently said this in March. I didn't even know he was still alive. But he actually said it is hoped that ivermectin will be utilized as a countermeasure for COVID-19 as soon as possible. And he talked about it, how it's great record. And so this is the guy who invented it, won together with Dr. Campbell, the Nobel Prize in 2015 for um, mm -hmm. concocting it for humans in, in, the, in the 70s. And then it led to approval in the 80s. So, you know, everyone's like, oh, it's only for a parasite. Well, the man who did that is now saying it should be used for um, for this. And I think that should give a lot of credence to, to usage. Mm -hmm. um, I want to get to early treatment but and end with that. Mm -hmm. But just uh, to square off the ICU, I unshackle mm -hmm. you. I open up a hospital and put Dr. Molly James in charge of the ICUs. What, what, what would be the things you'd start doing? 
Um, first of all, we would be giving NAC and IV vitamin C infusions. We would be checking vitamin D levels. We would be using natural light instead of using tube feeds that come out of a, a bottle that look like brown goo. I would use real foods and spin them in a blender and put it down people's feeding tubes so they're getting the healing properties of food. Um, we would get rid of remdesivir and we would be doing ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and phenofibrate and fluvoxamine and all of the anti-inflammatories that we could to, to get these people. We would be using very aggressive ARDS ventilator settings and we would be more optimistic and we would let the families come in and we would talk with them and we would work with them so they know we're on their side and not in opposition to them because that's part of the healing process too. Meaning kind of like cancer patients where you go over the options, you, you know, increasingly try to throw in the kitchen sink with, you know, increased severity. Um, what, what do you think of, I'm hearing from a lot of people. So again, we have a lot of good options early, good options early. Mm-hmm. You, the later it gets, it's really diminishing. I mean, all that stuff you mentioned should be tried, but I think, you know, we'll caution that they, likely work infinitely better earlier and that's obvious but the closest thing to and i don't want to call it a silver bullet but the closest thing that we seem to have to like one thing that if you're like the bottom of the ninth inning and like man this guy looks Mm -hmm. like he's gonna go all the way but assuming like you don't have sepsis or organ damage yet it's just like you just can't Mm -hmm. get under control are the androgen blockers would you try that Mm -hmm. so i have so that the one patient story i told you i did put him on uh, finasteride, I added that just as it's a pretty low risk medication. And if it adds any benefit to these people, you know, I'm all for it. So, and I'm not a big medication person traditionally <laughs> at all. So, but again, you look at risk and benefit, right? Risk is low benefit, potentially medium to high. So it makes the decisions quite easy when you look at it that way. Cause my concern is that, you know, ICU doctors already know probably with 90% certainty, sometimes they'll get surprised, but you, by now, you know, you look at a guy, you could probably wager where it's headed. And, and what I can't wrap my arms around is when you see those type of guys like, yeah, I think that guy's a goner, why you wouldn't do what we traditionally seem to do with cancer, with other things, and just go all out. That's what I don't understand. Yeah, yeah I really don't understand the resistance to trying ivermectin. Um, I think I think the people on the other side of the story have done a really good job scaring doctors that it's toxic. Um if you're dying of hypoxemia, you know, again, it's risk and benefit, right? So even if there's a, which I don't believe it's toxic at all, I think we have a wide safety profile and we can increase the dose to whatever we need it to sure. be. Um, everything's toxic. But, yeah, if you use it for toxic, COVID, it's toxic. But if you, you know, like I was joking around this, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with nitazoxanide. Um, yeah. You know, the, the, a little. It's just come out. Yeah. The, the studies are insane. And in many ways, it's even better than ivermectin. Like the research, I'm talking about pre COVID. Like mm-hmm. pre COVID with ivermectin, there's a little bit on viral. Here, there's tons on viral. It's already approved for viral mm-hmm. um, treatment in Brazil. Mm-hmm. It's FDA approved here, but mainly used for parasitic stuff. But it's mm-hmm. like it, it was used on MERS and coronavirus colds. Like it's much more closer. It's a different mechanism of action. And Molly, Am I wrong? Like, again, I know, you know, we need to look at this a little bit more, but um, what about mm-hmm. a nitazoxanide ivermectin mm-hmm. one-two punch? Like, why aren't we looking at that? I think anytime you are talking to doctors about using a medication they haven't used before, number one, there's initial skepticism, right? 
Like sure. I need to know that this data is valid and I need to make sure it's safe and I need to cover my bases before I just widely adopt it. Because nobody wants to get far down a road and find out like some of, of the other things. It was a big mistake. I mean, but there were articles um, so, on Nidazoxanide and even in the media uh, 13, 14 months ago. I mean, this is ridiculous. Right. Right. But I think uh, once you get through that skepticism, you know, people have to be open and they have to say, we're still not winning the battle here and our outcomes still are not great. And we still need to be looking, you know, for what options might be better. And we still need to be open to that. And we, we need to find the best protocol. And when there's a doctor in the United States that has 50% of mortality in the ICU that everybody else does, like Joe Verone, we need to know what is he doing and why. Joe Verone, could, could you it? talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I know I know a little bit about his work. You know, they his his mortality rates are half of everybody else in the country, and he's done all these interviews, and they edit out the ivermectin part. So <laughs> that's very unfair. I mean, why would anyone disadvantage other patients in the country that don't have him as their doctor? Because if my other colleagues would have heard Joe Verone talking about ivermectin for a year and a half. We'd probably be using it by now. I would like to think. So let me let me so, guess. So you're telling me something that was given several billion times to Africans without a problem, something that was given hundreds of millions of times in Uttar Pradesh and several other Indian states, hundreds of millions of times without a problem, uh, Mexico City and Dominican Republican healthcare workers prophylaxing, and even in America, as, as scarce as it is and repressed, there's already a ton of people that have been doing this without incident, but somehow in an ICU when the guy will likely die— if you don't yeah. up your game, it's toxic. I mean, I don't know how to wrap my arms around that. I, I well, just. And, and, and I've been challenged on this. Why don't you use it in the ICU? And in the hospital, I'm limited to what the hospital orders. And there are other people who weigh in on what I order for patients. So it is not exclusively up to me how I treat. Um, that being, since my effect is limited there. That's why I opened my clinic so that I can try to help people stay out of the hospital because that's a way I might be more impactful at this time. So that's what I wanted to close with, Dr. James. So you uh, obviously, again, you know, everyone's like, oh my God, people are dying. You are a jerk and you're, you shouldn't be allowed to breathe, live, and everyone must get the shot. Um, your lesson is, oh my gosh, this thing could get really bad. Why don't we apply the same principle we do with every other pathogen or issue in medicine? Treat it when it is, um, you know, a baby, not a uh, a monster. So, mm -hmm. talk about what you set up, what you're doing, mm -hmm. and some of your advice to people that are looking at the South now, live in the North, and like, man, I don't mm -hmm. think I've gotten it already, so I don't have immunity yet. Vaccinated mm -hmm. or unvaccinated, if you didn't have prior immunity. What should they be doing and where could you help? Yeah, absolutely. What I'm really concerned about is what I'm seeing, um, not necessarily my direct colleagues, but the attitude and um, that unvaccinated people should be deprioritized for care. They've been closed off from medical offices. Doctors have said, I'm not taking care of them. You had the walkout in Florida. So my heart especially goes out to people who are have concerns about the vaccine and don't want to get it or have contraindications, you need to be prepared because I don't know what you're going to face. I know what you're going to face if I take care of you, which is the same care everybody else is going to get uh, and the best I can do, but I don't know what they're going to get at other places. So be prepared so that we can help keep you out of the hospital and you can manage yourself at home. Um, 
so what I do is I meet with patients and we go over, have you been infected? Because if they have natural immunity, their risk is pretty low. And I focus on vitamins like vitamin D, quercetin, zinc. That's, those two are pretty powerful right there. And then we might want to have some ivermectin on hand with an early at-home test kit and a pulse oximeter in case they get sick. Um, I have people who are traveling internationally, and I just had a friend who traveled overseas and got sick when she landed, and she had some ivermectin with her. So between that and a pulse oximeter and vitamins, I was able to text with her every day, and she, we were able to treat her overseas. So for people, especially if they're traveling, I give them a full complement of the treatment protocol to have on hand. And then the instruction is, if you get sick, let me know, and I'll help guide your care and treat your symptoms. So the website to use on which day. So the website is ivermectincan.com. Um, again, obviously, uh, and I, I don't blame you. You want to avoid the insurance cartels. So you don't, you know, deal with that. You you take regular, you know, payments directly from um, mm-hmm. these people, and you give either prophylaxis guidance, p- certainly people who already get it, and you know what sort of mix of cocktails to take and guidance, and just you know, obviously things like nasal irrigation and and ways of uh, you know trying to reduce viral load or reduce uh, risk of exposure. Um, mm-hmm. anything else just, uh, before we sew this up? Um, that's the main focus of what we do. Again, part of the consult, I see people for prevention and they have my cell phone number. So if they get sick or they have questions, they can text me. I don't know a lot of doctors who make themselves that available. Um, if they're acutely ill, I have them text me every day with updates so I can modify their treatment or we hop on a FaceTime call so that we can, I can evaluate them. Um, and I also, you know, long haul COVID is right in the vein of functional medicine. So I think there's some pretty good treatment protocols out there and that align with functional medicine and getting these people back to, to a good state. So, um, I offer the plethora of treatment again, even, I think the key message that you've been getting out is even if you're vaccinated, you're still a candidate for early therapy. You can still get sick. You can still get critically ill. I've had critically ill vaccinated people in my ICU. So I've seen it with my own eyes. It is possible. It is less likely right now based on the numbers we're seeing at this time. I think that will change. Um, so just be prepared. Know your options and don't take no for an answer. And aren't they aren't those patients, I just want to go back to that for a minute. This, this is important. Mm-hmm. Aren't they mainly among those vaccinated earlier? Correct. Yes, so far. So that's a very important so- thing because so that's not a stagnant data point. That means it's likely going to be quite dynamic. Oh, I think it is. And again, the only studies we have are the countries who vaccinated ahead of us. So if we look at what's happening there, I don't know why it would be any different here than there. So I think we can anticipate something like they're seeing, which is a rise in vaccinated people and higher case fatality rates for people who are vaccinated to contract the illness and get critically ill. And again, like I would love, I have so many people I could think of in my life. I would love to get in touch with you. For example, again, people were absolutely, they're all vaccinated. Um, but they, they have very serious illnesses and they're very scared. And and frankly, mm-hmm. I mean, this Fauci and Walensky are saying that, that especially if you are in the category that we frankly needed the vaccine the most for, it works the least. That is their position. I mean, that is out in the mm-hmm. open now, not just in Israel, but even the U.S. health officials are saying that and that they critically need a booster shot. So um, so everyone's going to need this early treatment if it becomes endemic. We certainly need that. Um, so again, ivermectin can. Folks, imagine if we had 
a thousand doctors with websites like that. Imagine if we had a thousand more like Dr. James. Keep us updated. Thanks for the briefing today, and God bless you. Thanks. God bless you. Okay, folks, we are out of time till next week. God bless you all, and thank you for listening.